Good morning. I'll be reading uh, Psalm 51 out of the ESV, if you want to follow along. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me from this joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud all of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered. On your altar. Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you give to us. We are undeserving of your grace and your mercy, and yet you continually and patiently and generously give to us. And I pray that our pastor, as he delivers today's message, would I pray that you would give him wisdom, Lord, and give him a clear mind. And I pray for those who hear today's message, Lord, that you would just Penetrate our hearts and our minds, Lord, that, and that you would teach us your word to our soul. And I just pray for those who leave this week, Lord, to Ecuador on the missions trip. I just pray that you would protect them and give them wisdom as they travel, Lord. And um, just pray that you would bless them and the people that they go minister to, Lord. And we just pray for this, this day and this message, Lord, and your amazing love. We just thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Um, Before I jump into our sermon part of our service here this morning, I just want to say kind of with a heavy heart, um, talking to one of our partner mission organizations and stuff, uh, Dave, uh, with ZimZam Global, he um, just in a conversation, Tom and I both had separate conversations been talking with some friends over WhatsApp, and uh, you know, you heard it for a brief moment, and then of course, as classic fashion, the news moves on to something else, like politics and, and indictments or whatever else. And um, but that, what is going on in Northeast India has not stopped. And what I mean by that is, uh, there are mul- there's been over 200 churches burned. And, uh, and they're even talking language like there's lynchings going on uh, with brothers and sisters right where Pastor Tom and I go. We were just there a few months ago. And uh, it's really sad because, um, as John Pudaiti even says, you know, what's been going on the last 100 years, especially the seven, probably last 70 years, so much for the kingdom of God has just been like, it's been incredible. So much to celebrate, and yet... 
in a matter of a couple of months, all that is just being crumbled. Now, having said that, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail. We know that the enemy does not have the final say. We know that God is using all things to glorify himself and to continue what he has begun. And so we, we rest joyfully and with confidence because of that, but that does not dismiss the struggle that is currently at stake. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling and uh, in all transparency, you know, we, we just moved into a house half the size that we are currently living in. And I go, man, isn't that so sad? And then, uh, and then we have brothers and sisters who are sleeping on a concrete floor who had their house burned and whose churches have been burned and who have lost loved ones because of all the tribalism that's going on. And it's just like, wow. And so I actually just, I want to pray for the church, the church, capital C church around the globe, but especially the church in Northeast India that is struggling. And uh, as our friend Kola, who we've made reference to many times, he sent a WhatsApp not long ago and he says, there are church bells everywhere, but they are no longer ringing. There are congregations that would gather in festivals and they, I mean, they do church well. I mean, they're lively, they get after it, but it is silent. And there's a, a, a mourning in a sense that's going on, but we are trusting that God will push through and that the gospel will go forward and that what the enemy intends for evil, guess what? God will use for good. And so church, I just want to ask you to stand to your feet right now and I want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Northeast India and uh, Kola and others who, if you're watching right now, we pray with you and for you. Let's bow our heads together. Oh, Father, we know that you love your church. You love your church so much that you sent your son Jesus to die so that we might be reconciled to you. And Father, we know that you establish your church And the promise that we have with that establishment, with that inauguration, with that existence, is that the gates of hell will not prevail. And yet, we see so much evil and wickedness and fleshly acts that persist. And we wonder, and sometimes maybe even scratching our head, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? What is going on? How are you going to redeem this? And yet we find great reassurance and comfort and confidence in the fact that you will. We don't always know the means by which you work, but we know that you work all things for the glory of your name. And so we just ask right now, Father, that even in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I do not lose heart, though my outer body is wasting away. My inner nature is being renewed day by day. I do not lose heart because everything that is happening is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Northeast India right now and for many other persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe, especially in the 1040 window. Father, we just ask that you would sustain them by your grace. We ask that you enable them and empower them by your spirit. We ask that they would be an incredible force for good. And where evil persists, that the love of God would be on full display. That people would be dumbfounded because the Christians did not react like normal people would react. That love would abound, that grace would abound all the more. Father, we ask that you, by your spirit, would enable them and empower them to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. You know, one of the fears or nightmares that I have as a pastor is waking up and realizing that I'm supposed to be preaching, and I didn't know it until Sunday morning. (laughs) Thankfully, that was not this morning. So, (laughs) but I was just thinking about that earlier. I've had those nightmares where you wake up like, oh no. And then you look at the schedule and oh good. I didn't have to get up at two in the morning and figure something out. You know, we come to the end of our 
our spiritual fitness series uh, this morning, and uh, if you've been following us for some time now, you, you're aware that we've been going through uh, a number of what we have historically or traditionally referred to as spiritual disciplines, or as I like to refer to them as spiritual practices, spiritual habits for the purpose that we might be spiritually healthy. Uh, we've, we've discussed a number of different topics like biblical community and generosity, Sabbath rest, prayer, fasting, the importance of reading and meditation on Scripture, and even last week on forgiveness. This morning, we dive into our final point of discussion or our final practice, and that is the practice of repentance. Now, if you've been a part of the church for a a while or you've grown up in the church, you might actually wonder to yourself, uh, that maybe asking this question, I did not know that forgiveness and, and repentance were spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, at least historically. And if you be thinking that, then your observations would be accurate. They would be correct. They are not traditionally lumped into the category of spiritual practices or disciplines. However, You might recall that the sermon series or the series that we've titled Spiritual Fitness is all about what it means to become mature in Christ or to be healthy spiritually. And so when you consider those practices or or those habits that lead to, to spiritual maturity, no doubt forgiveness and repentance ought to be lumped into that list because After all, without a lifestyle of forgiveness and repentance, you cannot experience the abundant life that Jesus offers. And so we conclude our series this morning with a practice of repentance, with a specific focus on how biblical confession leads to spiritual freedom. A long while ago, we went through the Gospel of Matthew together. And uh, in Matthew chapter 4, and kind of in the middle there, you'll, you'll notice, or you may have, that Jesus was uh, tempted in the wilderness. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was tempted, and then he went through temptation victorious. And then we see that his mission had begun at that point, and there's a kind of a summary statement that the gospel writer Matthew says in regards to the ministry and the message of Jesus. And it says that Jesus went all around to the communities preaching a message that said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, because the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, because God's rule has begun through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, there's only one appropriate message or response to that glorious reality, and that is repentance. Confession and repentance, however, is not just something we limit to salvation. We oftentimes think, oh, you've got to repent, now you're a Christian, and now you live your life now having a newfound heart and life with Jesus Christ. And that is true to some level or to some degree, but I think it's, uh, we, we need to understand as brothers and sisters in Christ that when you look on the pages of Scripture, repentance is not merely a salvation issue. It is, it is more of a lifestyle. It is a way of life. I think Martin Luther was correct when he, when he quoted this 1,500 years later when he hammered up those 95 theses on the, on the door. The first statement he said was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, what is repentance? It is not just something you will do at the OCS golf tournament on hole number seven. (laughs) After you swing, swing, and swing some more. Talk about a very humbling sport. I just I quote, joke with quotes, but uh, it is difficult. If you haven't done it for a very long time, there were things that were coming out in my heart that I did not know existed until I played <laughs> golf. That's my repentance before you. Now, but when we think about the question, what is repentance? I believe one of the greatest definitions, in fact, probably the, one of the greatest descriptions of repentance is found in Psalm chapter 51, which... Chris Phobian read for us. 
In this psalm, King David uh, repents of his sin before God and as a result gives us a better understanding of what biblical confession really is. But I think in order for us to grasp the significance of David's repentance, we need to understand the context that compelled him to eventually write this psalm in the first place. And that makes us turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, in the seat in front of you. If you don't even own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible as your own. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to actually read this. You can actually listen to it if you'd like, or you can read along with me. I'm reading from the, actually the New Living Translation for the narrative part of this. And uh, I think it's important to set the stage or the tone as to why Psalm 51 is so profoundly impacting when it comes to this practice of repentance. Listen or read along with me. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. little commentary here real quick. Without it saying it explicitly, David is already in a season of compromise. You see, David, the warrior king, he would have been the first to battle, and yet what we see here in a very, in a kind of a, a poetic genre fashion, we see that David was not going out to battle as he would have normally have done. Again, this is when everybody was out to battle. It was a kind of the, the time of the year that was, I guess, appropriate for laying siege and stuff. David, however, did not go out. Late one afternoon, verse 2, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sent him to David. And when, David, when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. And then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab my master, and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. And so Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he, could, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to be with his wife. And again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And so the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah at the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. And so Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. And he told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there to be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed by Thebes, by a woman who threw a millstone down on him over the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. 
So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as, they ch- as, we, as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at some of us, and some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. And then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. By the way, from chapter 11 to chapter 12, it's almost a year later. Quote, this is Nathan speaking. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal for his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from this power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Let's stop right there. What are your thoughts hearing a story? And this isn't just a fictitious story. Hearing this account of a guy like King David, especially a guy who, when he was anointed a king, had the reputation of being a man after God's own heart, right? This is why God chose him. He's like, not all your other seven brothers. I want this one. This is a man who loves me. This one who understands my heart. This is the one who I can work with and through and in. How does a man like King David, who has written many Psalms prior, how does a man like this have the capacity to do what he did? What do you make of this? Maybe perhaps you hear this story and you might think, I would never do that. I'm appalled. How could anybody ever do something like that? Or you might actually think to yourself, how does David get off with a kind of a proverbial slap on the wrist? And, and why, does God give, why did not God give David what he deserved? Even David himself acknowledged someone who did such a thing deserves to die. And yet, God doesn't kill him. Before we continue forward, I want to make sure that we understand three crucial truths in Scripture, truths that we all need to come to come to grips with in our own life. One truth is this. Every single one of us is capable of any kind of sin. Every single one of us in this room is capable of any kind of sin. If you're thinking to yourself, I would never do that, David himself, prior to that point, 
probably said the same thing. I would never do that. I used to preach at the Clallam Bay Prison, rubbing shoulders with many guys who said, never in my life would I have thought this was my future. Some of those serving a life sentence. Never in my life growing up, I want to be a fireman, I want a policeman. Oh, I want to be in jail the rest of my life. That's not what people think, and yet there they are. You see, sin, brothers and sisters, always comes through a series of compromise. And when you're in a season of compromise, guess what happens? Little compromises become big compromises. And even all, some of us in here can look back on, I did not realize I could get to this point. How did I get here? If you think you are incapable of sinning in a specific way, then please take to heart Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, when he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think a second point or truth that we need to come to grips with is this, that apart from God's redemptive grace, you and I are left wanting. We, are, we all fall terribly short of God's perfect standard. We all fall to our knees disqualified. We are all guilty and deserving of eternal punishment. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. The point here is this. Before we start down the path of shock at David's sin and the seeming injustice on God's part, a little humility in our own lives will help us admit that we too are guilty of the same sin. Remember those statements in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, right? You have heard it said, but I tell you statements. The fact is we too have committed murder because of the unforgiveness in our own hearts. And you can listen to Pastor Corey's sermon last week on that. We too are guilty of adultery because of the lust in our own hearts. And that's not just limited to men. We too are guilty of hiding our sin, maybe even thinking that God doesn't care much about it or that God is kind of minimizing the effect of it because we have not yet reaped the consequences for it. We too, more than we'd like to admit, are just like King David. I think a third truth that we need to come to grips with is this. Sinlessness is not the mark of godliness. Repentance is. Sinlessness is not the mark of godliness. Repentance is. Now, before you think I just became a heretic, let me explain what I mean. Yes, godliness, righteousness, Sinlessness, sinlessness are all synonymous terms. And yes, God is committed to cleansing us from all unrighteousness, from the sin that is hidden deep within our hearts. The process is called sanctification. God is committed to that till the very end. But here's our dilemma. No one is sinless. And even in Christ, even though we've been given a new heart, the fact is we still sin. Yes, we just taught, we just learned through the letter of 1 John that we should not have a pattern of sin in our lives because a pattern of sin could indicate that you may not actually be a believer. You might profess the right thing, you might profess the truth, but you may not actually be a son or a daughter of the king because your life does not reflect one who has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But the fact is, as John also acknowledges, apart in this life, on this side of eternity, we still continue to sin. The real heretic is the person who thinks they can attain perfect righteousness in this life based on their abilities. But the only righteousness that makes you acceptable before God the Father is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And until you and I have received our imperishable and and undefiled body, we all stand in need of God's limitless grace. 
In other words, what I'm getting at is this. Godliness doesn't mean we graduate from our need for grace. Godliness is uh, it's just the opposite, in fact. It means that we become increasingly more aware of our need for grace. The more you pursue Christ, the more you grow in maturity, the more you realize that I need God's grace every moment of every day of my life. I don't get it for a little bit, get saved and move on from it. I live in it, I rest in it, I soak in it because apart from it, I am hopeless and nothing. And the means by which you and I are able to receive God's grace and mercy which are expressions of his agape love for us, is through this term called repentance. How do you and I remain in God's love through repentance? How does biblical confession lead to spiritual freedom? I want to highlight seven observations. Seven observations of genuine biblical confession that leads to spiritual freedom freedom. The first one is this. When you look at Psalm 51, first of all, biblical confession includes an awakened conscience. Biblical confession includes an awakened conscience. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 51. If you're not there, please turn back to Psalm 51. I know I'm flipping you back and forth all over the place. Psalm 51, verse 3, David says this. He acknowledges this. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, David, a year has passed. He was probably even thinking, as some of us have probably have done many times in our life, maybe we are currently in that place right now where we're going, does my sin really matter? I mean, I haven't reaped what I've sown. I haven't reaped any, like, uh, necessary, you know, consequences for my actions. Maybe God doesn't really care. Maybe he's already forgiven it and it's just kind of swept under the rug. David says this, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, God used his prophet Nathan to awaken the conscience of David by reminding him of his son even a year later. Now, I won't go into detail about this because we don't, time does not allow, but let me just tell you just very quickly, every single one of us, if you are a human being in this room, which I hope you are, uh, every single one of us in here has a conscience, a God-given conscience, and the conscience is given for the purpose of helping us make wise decisions as well as avoiding foolish decisions that may harm us. But here's the deal about our conscience. Your conscience, my conscience, is not infallible. It isn't perfect. And because of that, it can't always be trusted. It's only as good as it is informed by Scripture. So when you think about the conscience that is given to us by God to guide us in life, what we must understand is that our conscience tells us when we are right and when we are wrong, but not necessarily what is right and what is wrong. That's what Scripture does. That's what God does through His Word. And David's conscience is awakened by God through the prophet Nathan informing him that God has seen his sin and he has not forgotten. But there's a second part that makes biblical confession biblical. And that is an understanding that sin is first and foremost a rebellion against God. Look at verse 4 with me. David says this, Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, um, hold on a second. David is saying, only you, God, have I sinned against. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sin. Didn't you actually have an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and kill Uriah to cover up your affair? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and the whole people of Israel? How can you say only you against you have I sinned? Well, on one hand, yes, David did sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And what he did to them was horrendous. He wronged them both very terribly. 
But ultimately, David acknowledges that David sinned against God because he violated God's law. This is a crucial distinction that we all need to come to grips with because so often we can become offended to one another. The fact is, when we violate God's moral law, it is ultimately a violation between us and him. Any sin, any violation, any wrongdoing toward another person is ultimately a sin against God. It's one reason why we don't confess our sins to a priest for the forgiveness of our sins because ultimately we violated God's standard, not the priest. And Jesus is our advocate, not the priest. And so we ultimately confess our sin and repent before God. Now, you might look at other passages of Scripture and say this. Well, doesn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, for example, that if you're aware of someone uh, that you have sinned or offended a brother, shouldn't you leave your gift at the altar and go and make it right and then come back and continue worship? And the answer is yes. Because oftentimes in our worship, when we encounter God, when we come into the presence of God, guess what happens? Everything is laid bare. It's one of, the, the, one of the realities of gathering together as a church. It's not so we can link arms and sing kumbaya, as fun as that might be. Might be. It's so that we would encounter God, and as a result of countering God, we would actually see the ugliness that still resides within our hearts so that we can be right, because guess what? You cannot experience spiritual freedom until you are free from that sin. And God has every intention of eradicating anything, especially those things that you're unaware of, until you encounter the King of Kings. He has every intention of eradicating those things in your heart. It's why I was even reading this morning in Psalm 32, David says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me until I confessed my sin before the Lord. In other words, God did not let up on David. Now, you look at James chapter 5, for example. James says, confess your sins to one another. So aren't we supposed to also confess to one another? Yes, but not for the intention of receiving forgiveness of sin, but because if you have violated something, someone, or if you are struggling with something, in the process of confessing or bringing sin into the light, guess what happens? It loses its power. Let me just tell you this. David was in hiding for a year thinking all is good, God never forgot. And he tells his prophet Nathan, go and tell King David his fault. Not because he's against David, but because he loves him. And David cannot be free until he is free from that sin that enslaves him in bondage. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be free. You cannot be spiritually free. You cannot have and experience the abundant life that Jesus offers and at the same time live in conscious sin. And God in his love and grace and mercy, he doesn't just go, well, let's just pretend it doesn't happen. No, he says, I want you to be free. I want you to walk in newness of life. I want you to not be enslaved by these shackles of sin any longer. And so he may cause things in your life. He may bring people into your life. He may have that heavy hand of God that David refers to in Psalm 32, that relentlessly pursuing until you are free. Because in the end, God's number one goal for you is to be free as he is free. We confess our sins because sin loses its power. As God makes us aware of our sin, we make it right. But ultimately, we need to understand that sin is rebellion against God. A rebellion that isn't just a minor infraction, but is eternally damning. We may offend one another, and we may experience relational strain as a result of that, but, against, but when we sin against God... It has eternal consequences. And that brings us to our third part or understanding of biblical confession. We need to be aware of the sinfulness of our sin. Biblical confession is an awareness of the sinfulness of your sin. Look at what verses, verse 7 here with me in, in Psalm 51. David, please with God, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. 
This reference to uh, hyssop is found in Leviticus chapter 14 where the lepers who sought cleansing from the priests were sprinkled seven times with a hyssop that was dipped in blood. And what David is referencing here in Psalm 51 is he's realizing or acknowledging that he is a spiritual leper in need of divine cleansing. And that divine cleansing can only be accomplished ultimately through the blood of the promised Messiah. I think a question that we all need to grapple with, reflect on, chew on, is do I view my sin as God views my sin? Do I regard my sin in the same way that God regards my sin? Do I see my sin as a minor infraction or for what it really is according to Scripture, an act that makes me deserving of hell and eternal separation from his love? I believe that we know we view our sin rightly when, this is our fourth understanding of biblical confession, is when we plea for God's mercy and when we cry for forgiveness. Look at verses 1 and 2, how David begins his psalm. This isn't a stoic cry, but I think you can, you can, you can feel the emotion. Have mercy. Mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, because David was now aware of his rebellion before God, who is perfectly righteous and holy, and because he's aware of what he deserves because of his sin, which is death, he cries out to God for mercy. He throws himself at the mercy of God. I mean, can you feel the emotion? Can you feel the weight? This isn't something that we're just like, oh, that's nice. That's really sweet. No, this is something that David is, he's like, I got no other option. I got nowhere else to turn. His plea is not merely intellectual because of an awakened conscience, but it's intensely emotional because he understands, apart from God's mercy, I'm done. And here's the point. True confession is accompanied by genuine remorse over one's sin. You see that Jesus also highlighted this in Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Brothers and sisters, another thing that we need to kind of grapple with or understand is this, that only God can make you clean. Only God can make you acceptable to God. Only God can remove your guilt, and only God can remove the stain of sin and make you white as snow. But if you're like me, how often do we, in a feeble sort of way, try to make ourselves acceptable once again, right? How often do we beat ourselves up emotionally and mentally, maybe even physically for some of you, I don't know, in order to make God happy with you again, right? Or at least to lessen the anger that you think he has against you. And so we start doing what we call penance, right? And we work really hard by our own self-determination. And we, work, and we try to be really good only to repeat the cycle and fall flat on our face and eventually become discouraged because we can't do it. And that's the whole point. You can't. Each and every one of us are desperately dependent on the mercy of God. And what God does is he actually woos us and says, I want you to know that my grace is sufficient for you. Mercy is available for you. You see, David shows us that we are all desperately dependent on the mercy of God for forgiveness and reconciliation. And guess what? God's mercy is infinite. 
That means there is no limitations to God's mercy. He doesn't run out. And it's not just reserved for some people. And I'm sorry for the other one over here, this last row. Bummer. No, his mercy is limitless. It's new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, we sing. He is eager to forgive us every time. I love what D.A. Carson, he said it this way, God is more eager to forgive our sins than we are to confess our sins. Think about that. He is more eager to forgive our sin than we are to confess our sin. In fact, God is so committed to our spiritual freedom that he doesn't just sit passively by waiting for you to get your act together. He's not just going, hey, all you gotta do is repent and we'll do something. God actually initiates your repentance. Isn't that crazy? Repentance is the means by which you and I are reconciled to God who receive his forgiveness and God loves you so much he's going, I'm gonna actually initiate repentance in your life. I mean, look at what David, look at King David here. David wasn't pursuing repentance. God initiated repentance in David's life by sending him the prophet Nathan to call out his sin and to restore him. In other words, the movement of repentance was from God to David before it was David to God. Our repentance, more often than not, is actually a response to God's initiation already in our lives. And so God, in his steadfast love for us, initiates a conviction of heart by his spirit so that we would cry out for mercy. And you know what God promises to give every time we cry out for mercy? Mercy. Limitless, infinite mercy. He lavishes us with mercy and grace and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yes, God, in the words of Walter Wright, says this, he's inflexibly righteous. I love that word, he's in, or that phrase, that he's inflexibly righteous, but guess what? He's also abundantly merciful. He is who he is. He's a holy God. He cannot be anything other, otherwise he would cease to be God, and at the same time we see that he is abundantly merciful, eager to forgive more than we are to confess. Only God can ultimately change us and initiate repentance. But this brings us to our fifth biblical observation about confession. Only God can give you a willing spirit to change. Verse 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit, which is a willing spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, confession of sin is important, but repentance confirms the genuineness of our confession. How is confession, you might ask, differ from repentance? A number of people have included or put forward helpful definitions. One definition by a guy named, an old pastor named Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Even as Spurgeon mentions in a sermon he gave back in 1885, he says this, you may approach God and you may tell him you are a wretch indeed. You may enumerate a long list of transgressions and the sins that you've committed, but you do so without a sense of heinousness for your guilt, without a spark of real hatred for your deeds. You have no abhorrence of sin. You confess your faults, and yet you have, no, you have not repentance. I think the prime example of this is Judas the Iscariot, right? Judas being one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples, walked with Jesus, saw him perform miracle after miracle, doing all kinds of things, knew that he was the Messiah, but sold out for 30 pieces of silver. And even in his remorse and in his guilt, we don't have any indication that Judas actually repented 
even though he was sorrowful for his actions. You see, repentance or confession, biblical confession, includes stating or acknowledging the sin or violation. But repentance experiences a a, a remorse. But even beyond that, it's a change of lifestyle. It's a choosing to think differently about that action or sin. Wayne Grudem says this in his systematic theology. He says, mere sorrow for one's actions or even deep remorse over one's actions does not constitute genuine repentance unless it is accompanied by a sincere decision to forsake sin that is being committed against God. John Piper says it this way, repenting is what happens inside of us that leads to the fruits of new behavior. Repentance is not, a, is, is not the new deeds, but the inward change that bears the fruit of the new deeds. But here's the dilemma. We can understand what repentance is. It's a change of mind. I, I live differently now. But here's the reality. If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle to think differently, right? I mean, look at Romans chapter 7. What does Paul acknowledge Why, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I struggle to do? It's the the great conflict we all experience in this life. We know the right thing to do, but struggle to do it, brothers and sisters. God, the will to change. The ability to change and to think differently about your sin. The ability to, to have a newness of mind and heart. The ability to kind of, to, uh, to kind of walk forward in a, new, a newness of life, to carve a new path forward, isn't on you but on God. Your job, your role is to throw yourselves at the mercy of God and say, God, I can't, but you can That's why, David, please, give me a willing spirit because I don't have a willing spirit apart from you giving me one. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May it be like you. Brothers and sisters, I have a feeling that some of us in here right now have struggled to experience the abundant life because you've been trying to change yourself. And maybe some of you actually feel very defeated in your walk of faith because you are trying to change you and only God can do that. It doesn't mean that we don't exert effort. It doesn't mean that we don't put forward some effort to, tra- to, to do what God calls us to do. But in the end, your help must be divinely initiated and divinely carried out. It starts with God. It's completed with God. And our role is to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. and Say, God, I can't, but you can. And in this desperation, I believe that this desperation can only come from a humble and contrite heart. This is what Dave acknowledges in 16, verse 16 and 17. And this is our sixth observation. A humble, and con- a humble and contrite heart is what matters more to God than your sacrifice. If you do not delight in sacrifice, David says, or you would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You probably heard this before, but uh, there was a London Times article titled, What is Wrong with the World Today? It probably is relevant even today. This was written back in the 60s. What is wrong with the world today? And in it, the the writer researched and reported all the moral and and social problems that were plaguing the world at that time. And it's kind of a rhetorical question, just kind of putting it out there. And this pastor named C.K. Chesterton wrote a profound letter in response to that question and article. And he says this, Dear editor, what's wrong with the world today? I am. Faithfully yours, 
G.K. Chesterton. You see, only in humility can we admit this kind of brokenness. It's easy to point the finger, and as us oftentimes told, there's three fingers pointing right back at you. Point the finger of all these things, if only all these things would change, and it begins with me. It begins with you. If you were to put this on a more national platform or perspective, I know many of us in here are praying for national reform, and we want our, our country to return in a sense that's great. It begins with you. It begins with personal repentance. Acknowledging that I have fallen. I'm part of the problem. Not everybody else. I'm contributing to the problem. And until the Lord restores me and remakes me and redeems me, only then can I have any hope and expectation of national reform and church-wide reform. One final question to introduce our final point. How do you know if you've effectively pursued biblical confession and repentance? How do you know if it's like, have I done this correctly or not? Biblical confession, this is my last point, is complete when our confession turns to the worship of God. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You remember the sinner, the nameless sinner that Corey referred to in Luke chapter 7? the woman who was washing Jesus' feet with her tears and, and cleaning his feet with her hair and putting expensive ointment all there. And of course, the, the guests couldn't understand what was going on. Only Jesus did. She wasn't trying to earn the acceptance of Jesus. She wasn't trying to offer a sacrifice to finalize, God, finalize God's forgiveness of her. No, she was worshiping Jesus because of the forgiveness she had already received. You see, what she was doing there was worshiping. I love what Tozer said as I was reading this past week on the justice of God. Tozer says this, when God justifies a sinner, everything in God is on the sinner's side. I'll tell you what, that just gave me goosebumps this week. It just kind of sat me in my chair. I felt twice as heavy and I was like, oh. When God justifies the sinner, everything in God is on the sinner's side. Wow. All of the attributes of God are on the sinner's side. Tozer goes on to conclude, Oh, friends, why are we so still? Why are we so quiet? We ought to rejoice and thank God with all our might. That's what the woman was doing in Luke 7. Rejoicing because she had been forgiven because her sins were no more. As far as the east is from the west, so her sins were, were, she was guilty or she was innocent. She was celebrating the forgiveness and the acceptance of God. How do you know when you and I have biblically confessed and completed our confession and repentance when it ends with the worship of God? Aaron, you might be asking, what if I don't feel like worshiping or what if I feel still guilty in my sin? What if I still feel sad about my sin? Then my response to you would be this. Don't move until you're able to result or conclude in the worship of God. Nothing else matters more in your life at that moment. We're going to take communion right now. And I know we're going long. But as the worship team comes on up here, and before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I think there are some of us in here that struggle to be ready to worship God um, because we have maybe not yet confessed our sin, because we have yet to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. 
Some of us in here are not ready to worship Jesus because we're still sorrowful or, or feeling guilty in our sin. Let me just say this to you as a way of encouragement. God is perfect, and everything that God does is perfect. And this means that God's atonement for your sin is perfect. Another word for perfect is complete, lacking in nothing, meaning nothing can be added to it. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, right, to telestai, it is finished, what he meant was that there was nothing more that can be added to the atonement and the forgiveness that God offers freely. It's done. And perhaps some of us in here have just not had the margin in our lives up to this point to say, enough is enough. I'm tired of walking with condemnation. I'm tired of walking with this guilt. I'm tired of living with this conscious sin in the back of mind. I'm tired of living with this bitterness in my heart. I'm tired of holding on to this. Brothers and sisters, God wants to forgive you and free you. Will you let him? Will you let him? 